Haters, are you feeling down? Do you feel that the events of the day are weighing on you? That it's hard to find hope? That you are up against a wave of calamity and hardship and that you can't see a path out? Well, let me give you a little message from my friend Paul who wrote to his friends, the Corinthians. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let there be hate. What is up, haters? Evan Barrett, Raider Cove, Two Minute Hate. Welcome to the motherfucking Cove. Today, I'm going to do a sort of uh, grab bag of things. The first thing, in terms of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, I don't know why this was making me think of this, but I was thinking that I have all these relationships in my life uh, where people who I love dearly, who I respect, believe very different things than I do, and I'm frustrated with them, and I know they're frustrated with me, and this can be a source of uh, of tension, but not just tension, but also of sort of like stress, like how can someone so smart believe something so irresponsible? And I just want to say in general, I think this is the you know, elevation of politics and intellectual identity over real human identity and affection, and that this is like a fixture of the modern era that we need to reject. I think we need a character-based framework for evaluating our loved ones more than sort of an ideological one. If I think about the people I love and rely on most, you know, my mom and my brother... My mom is certainly much more liberal than me. I think my brother is a little bit more liberal than me. But they're the best people I know or have. I could rely on them for anything. I mean, we don't even have major disagreements. I just mean that the nature of the connection has nothing to do with politics. You know, they'd they'd help me bury a body. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think of some of my best friends, one friend in particular former roommate, straight-up lunatic liberal, probably also the best person I know. So, you know, I think it's helping me in these trying times to remind myself that we can have these character-based evaluations uh, of each other, first and foremost, before any ideological consideration and ideology should even be a second thought. I mean, I think what we think, because the language of politics implies, you know, if you don't care about X person, if you don't believe in, you know, a social safety net for this person, that means you're cruel and so you must be cruel in all things or something like that. Or, you know, I could say, if I'm thinking of my own perspective, like if someone's going through their life 
and they never think of the Rohingya or the what's happening in Syria or whatever, that this means that they're inconsiderate narcissists, they're only focused on their own existence. But none of this is true. This is this is a lie that's acting as if the intellectual framework for a human being and a human life is that somebody must have thought about and come to a good, sensible, productive conclusion on every problem in the world at all times. And the truth is, and again, this gets back to my sort of like belief in God, that's something a God could do. That's not what humans can do. Humans cannot put their own lives in perspective. That is the very nature of our existence. We are literally defined by our incapability to comprehend the full moral horror of the world we live in. And thank God we can't because uh, it would be paralyzing. And so the only real framework you can use to judge people, I think, is, uh, you know, what would they do for you and what do they do for other people around them, in their world, in the world in front of their face? Are they considerate to the elderly? Do they call their mothers? Do they try to maintain relationships? Uh, Do they work hard to, uh, you know, be considerate? And I think, you know, I have a list of people in my mind who believe very responsible things about the world and who cheat on their partners and never call their parents and are just sort of garbage humans in this more traditional sense. And then I have a list of people who I think are basically ideologically insane, who I would want in a foxhole with me, who I would call if I was moving, who I would want at my bedside if I was sick. And uh, given that we're never going to know really much of anything, let alone everything, I think that is certainly the more relevant framework for judgment. So I don't know, that's just been a thought kicking around in my head that's been helping me uh, recently. This is going to be sort of a a hodgepodge podcast. Um, I want to get into some media review stuff. Because I was traveling, I watched a lot of different things. Um, And I had various reactions to them that I will insist on sharing with you. Um, but first, I just want to talk about this Cambridge Analytica thing. I don't fully understand the story. It does seem like an interesting, um, an interesting sort of, uh, like, I don't know. It's an interesting twist because certainly this organization could be the vehicle through which the Trump campaign and... Russia communicated, you know, both things having interactions with this institution. But I just want to note, and I'm not saying that um, Cambridge Analytica is totally typical of the attitude of sort of all modern companies or whatever, but I do think one thing we're, we're finding again and again, and, and I have no particular insight into how this relates to the Trump collusion case, so I'm just going to leave that aside besides to say that it is sort of like an interesting development. Um, I think what I'm more interested in is just that technology companies, uh, and I'm including Facebook in this because I think Facebook also has a lot of 
blame here is that there's sort of like the spirit of the law we have in the United States that protects, uh, you know, our individual information cannot really be effectively enforced until there is legal precedent. So I think a lot of these companies are sort of playing fast and loose with what they're allowed to do with our personal information. And what we hope will happen is through things like this coming out, we will get greater insight into what information of ours they have and what they're doing with it. And then a body of case law will be built that uh, establishes how companies can uh, affect, like how they can manipulate this information in a way that uh, the public is okay with. But given the corruption and incompetence of our Congress, given how much smarter these companies are than we are at understanding the technologies at play, given how sort of like greedy, cynical, and authoritarian their viewpoint seems to be, I have deep, deep concerns about this, especially because I think parts of the uh, technological innovation they are no doubt pursuing is how to hide, manipulate, and obfuscate what they know about us and how they're using it. Um, And so I think it's really disturbing and something we need to think about because I think what's ironic is these companies, and I'm talking more about Facebook here than Cambridge Analytica, these companies believe that they are not evil. They believe their role in the world is a productive one and a positive one. They think sort of like connecting people... uh, is just like a profound good. And in some ways, obviously, it is. Uh, And so they don't view themselves, you know, they view themselves as benevolent. And that's a dangerous viewpoint. I mean, Cambridge Analytica is a little bit more of a shady uh, thing. They may know that they're in like a darker game. But, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, organizations that possess truly dangerous amounts of information about us they aren't particularly concerned because they think, hey, we're just us. We're, we're cool kids in Menlo Park. We're hipsters. We're the people that fire James Damore. Why would we ever do anything uh, to hurt anybody? There's two problems with that. One is that, you know, power corrupts. You don't get to... Uh, you don't get to sort of try and reconcile the amount of undue and sudden power you have based on technology against your own view of your own character. We have built a society where certain things just aren't supposed to be allowed because let's say even Mark Zuckerberg is truly this benevolent boy king. Well, who knows who takes over the company next? And for that matter, I don't trust that fuckstick to begin with. Um, And the other thing is... You know, all these companies could be penetrated by hostile states or other organizations. So it's just not safe. I'm extremely concerned about it. I think Congress is asleep at the wheel. And like all problems, the ultimate solution I come to is to smash my cell phone and move to the woods. So, (laughs) you know, in a couple years, you may be receiving these podcasts on audio tape by Carrier Pigeon. But uh, I haven't gone full Ted Kaczynski just yet, so we'll see. Uh, I want to talk a bit about Christopher Nolan. I wanted to watch Dunkirk for a long time, and when I was in 
England and France. I took the train from London to Paris, and you actually go, I think, the route of the train when you come out under the, you know, the tunnel that goes under the, the English Channel, and you're suddenly in France, you're about 50 kilometers south of Dunkirk, something like that, and so I, I happened to make that trip just about a day after having watched Dunkirk on the plane. First of all, Dunkirk is a beautiful and wonderful movie. Um, I think that I can understand why it wouldn't necessarily be heralded as uh, like the movie that should win the Oscar or whatever, you know, not enough fish fucking. But it is sort of like narratively challenging, like there's weird time scales being interwoven and there's no real central character. But I think what's sort of amazing about the movie is, you know, it's it's such sort of like a beautiful story in the sense of, I mean, it's terrifying to begin with, just this this story of these British teenagers trying to get home across the channel any way they can under German artillery fire and, and you know, bomber planes. Um but it's it's sort of a, a story about like character and perseverance and it's just you know like catch 22 is is a wonderful book but catch 22 it talks about a conflict that i think was noble and i think history has decided was noble and it sort of shows you that you know it's it's not making the opposite argument but it's sort of saying like once violence pops off the situation is so intense and the things it does to people are so barbaric and extreme that you can't even recognize any uh, any moral justification if you're sitting in the conflict because all you see is uh, corruption, hypocrisy, barbarity, violence, and really insanity. And I am quite confident that if I was exposed to any level of violence, that would be my conclusion. I'd probably immediately become a pacifist. Uh, but I would also argue that speaks to my weakness of character, not any great conclusion about whether or not, you know, wars are ever necessary. But I think what's beautiful about the movie is it's just, it shows sort of like seven or eight different examples of people who had the opportunity to save themselves and get out early from the evacuation on the beach and who decide to turn around and try to save their fellow soldiers, um, you know, and risk their life again to execute this evacuation. Um, and that's important for two reasons. One is that ultimately a, a shit ton more people get off the beach uh, and then the fact that so many British troops uh, make it back to uh, England means that they could, in fact, um, you know, continue uh, continue the war and defect and defend the United Kingdom um, because they still had troops uh, because they were successfully evacuated. And I think, like, you know, if you read war histories, I mean, I don't think it's it's not the typical human behavior in war to exhibit such 
extreme self-sacrifice, but it is certainly something that happens. I mean, even just working on Syria, you hear stories about this, and, you know, there's people who work in our organization, including my former organization, including people who got killed, who, you know, safely made it to Turkey and went back into Syria again and again uh, to help other people get out, to deliver aid. Uh, We had two people killed by the regime, two people killed by ISIS, all of whom did not need to be in Syria when they were killed. So it is not as if there are not such people on earth, and those acts have tremendous meaning. And I think it's an important... um, it's an important sort of message at this time when sort of like faith in things like national character are so uh, are so you know undermined and undermined for good reason. I'm I'm not saying this this cynicism is born of nothing, but it's just uh, it's it's beautiful in that way. It it sort of it makes the argument that if collectively as a people you inculcate some culture of self-sacrifice, or maybe even if you haven't, but just a critical mass of individuals in a moment exercise their free will to do the good thing, you get a much better outcome than you otherwise would. So I found the whole thing very touching, and I think the most sort of touching moment of the movie is at the end when these young British soldiers... Uh, you know, 18, 19, maybe younger, having escaped, are incredibly worried uh, that they will return to shame, that the older generation will view them as having gotten chased off the continent, having lost the battle and probably the war, and that they are, uh, you know, that they are the shame of the country. And in fact, they are met by an older generation of Britons that is thrilled that they are still alive and appreciative that they were fighting at all. So it's just sort of about this, you know, a, a society um, behaving in, in a very, uh, like, touching way. And again, I, I have no idea to what extent, like, what percentage of the population actually reacted in that manner or whatever, but either way, it's, you know, it's art and it's a, it's a beautiful piece of art. It's also just shot incredibly, like it's, it's captivating. I couldn't take my eyes off it. And I think when you, when you watch a movie like Dunkirk and then you watch the next movie I watched on the plane, which was Wonder Woman, uh, you just sort of like put your hands in your head and cry at the state of the modern world. I mean, I don't want to get into a whole Wonder Woman takedown because I don't, I don't like comic book movies in general and like maybe this one was just average but it's a piece of shit I think maybe I can just write off its celebration to like identitarian bullshit uh Gal Gadot is a bad actor Chris Pine is occasionally charming but like Ryan Reynolds just does the same shtick in every movie I think it works when he's playing Captain Kirk but when he's just doing Captain Kirk as any other character, it's it's a little old. So, I don't know. Watching those two movies back-to-back was interesting. Obviously, you know, Wonder Woman's about World War One, Dunkirk's about World War Two, So there are some, like, aesthetic similarities. So I think it was particularly striking to be like, here's this profound uh, 
like deep poem about how civilization survives and then there's a movie about world war one that's like girls can kick ass too uh and of course they can uh but yeah wonder woman sucks anyways i was sort of interested in christopher nolan because i know that on the conservative internet there has long been this idea that christopher nolan is like this uh crypto super conservative who, uh, and that perhaps Dunkirk was about Brexit because part of what happens in Dunkirk is that, you know, I mean, I think this is an uncharitable reading of what happened to the British soldiers, but I've seen some conservatives describe the metaphor that Nolan was going for as like, these, these young soldiers were in a desperate situation they couldn't get themselves out of, and an older generation of Britons takes their small boats across the channel to save them and bring them back to England. And you could view this as sort of like Brexit in like these young progressives don't understand anything and they're ruining British society through (laughs) immigration and social programs and the older people uh, save them. I don't find that a particularly interesting metaphor, but I am very interested more broadly in the idea that one, that Nolan is this crypto-conservative, and two, that sort of like a wise way to be a conservative artist is to never make uh, sort of like transparent political statements about your views, but make pieces of art with certain implications um, because, you know, Hollywood and the modern world is so hostile to certain attitudes. And yet Hollywood in general produces movies with conservative narratives, I would say, the majority of the time. You know, movies focus on heroes. Movies often have direct consequences with the good being rewarded and the bad facing consequences. I I think we have to admit to some extent that there's some insight into, like, a traditional morality that we find... When traditional morals are captured in narrative, we almost all find them compelling, regardless of our supposed political outlook. And I think that implies something interesting about our true beliefs about morality. Or you could just say, because we're socialized within that morality, we find those narratives compelling. Um, And you could also argue that that's breaking down when you have art like The Wire or The Sopranos or anything that has sort of like much more challenging views of morality that is also compelling to people. But uh, I don't know. I I think it's, it's no mistake that we tell the same stories over and over again throughout human history. Uh, stories that focus on sacrifice, loyalty. And it's not even that the good get rewarded. It's sort of that, like, the good are righteous and the unrighteous are disgusting and sometimes punished. Like, you know, there are these tropes in narrative that really do remain mostly unchanged despite challenges. But getting back to the, like, crypto-conservative Nolan argument, I think it's interesting to go through his filmography, not all of which I've seen. Um, But, you know, the first one that was on my radar was Memento. I don't know that you can say Memento has a political philosophy. I mean, certainly 
it is in some ways celebrating a vengeance tale. I don't know that vengeance has political context. Vengeance is sort of like a... I mean, I think in every... You could say that in every major, you know, religion on earth, the perils of vengeance are explored. And yet also in sort of like these religious canons, there are certainly also stories of righteous vengeance that are celebrated. But Memento also introduces this chaotic aspect where, you know, the supposed hero who's taking revenge for his wife, it is revealed, hasn't actually known what's been going on um and he's just sort of like you know he's he's being used in a way like his narrative has been co-opted um in order to get him killed to kill people on behalf of sort of unknown actors so that's that's more of like i wouldn't call it nihilistic per se but it's it certainly projects a view of the universe as chaotic. Insomnia, which came out two years after Memento, is where, you know, Al Pacino is a detective, can't sleep, very flawed guy, goes to capture this killer played by Robin Williams. I mean, there's certain, like, hero tropes, but this is more like a typical cop movie in that it's sort of, like, extremely flawed hero trying to do something good. So there's something redemptive about it, which is certainly... Christian in a certain sense. Um, but I think the more, um, perhaps the most interesting series of films trying to analyze, uh, you know, Nolan's politics. I mean, you could say in these earlier movies, chaos and fear of chaos emerges as a theme. And then Batman begins, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises is really sort of almost an authoritarian argument for, like, when the forces of chaos are at the gates, a sort of competent authoritarian who exists outside the law and who can enforce order and protect the good and punish the evil is what's called for. You know, you could call this, like, the the Bloomberg... <laughs> the Bloomberg Giuliani... Uh, series of, of Batman movies. Um, and I remember even at the time being sort of uncomfortable with how direct some of the political commentary was. Like, you know, when uh, I believe it's in The Dark Knight, um, it could be in Batman Begins, when uh, Bruce Wayne sort of has an argument with Morgan Freeman, where Morgan Freeman's like, oh, you're just going to like spy on everyone in the city. Uh, and Batman's like, yeah, that's what it takes. And, you know, Harvey Dent is also this character who's sort of willing to bend the rules to bring crime under control. And then, like, Bane, the whole character of Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, he really is sort of like Antifa meets terrorist. So I think in this series of movies, you definitely can see, like, Nolan's almost hysterical fear of chaos and, like, the lengths to which he might go or see a hero go uh, to hold those at bay. Um, and then you have this random Interstellar, which I, I don't know where to put Interstellar on. Maybe that's him being like, I need to chill out for a sec. Um, 
And Inception too. I mean, Inception and Interstellar. I I can't, I can't really put a put an easy political analysis on either of those. But Dunkirk, I do think, is this like incredibly reactionary, traditionalist, conservative, like love letter, uh, and I think it's the most effective of his movies in terms of sort of packaging a like socially conservative message within a beautiful film and there are less aspects of the conservative message that are offensive because it's all about you know it's not about spying on people to fight terrorism or crime it's just about like being noble sacrifice loyalty um themes that even your fudgiest Prague might get behind on a on a on a day they were feeling generous. So, you know, I I think he's an incredibly interesting director. He's he's one of the directors where, whenever he comes out with anything, I'm I'm interested and and want to see it. Um, I also on the trip took the time to uh, in my downtime. You know, I'm not I'm not like drinking as much these days and. I was trying to not spend that much money in Europe, so there was a lot of like hotel room time watching Netflix, and I went through a bunch of stuff. I love that movie Moon, so I watched Mute, which is this sort of sci-fi noir thing about a guy who lost his voice and can't speak, and he's looking for his girlfriend in futuristic Berlin, and Moon was such a good movie that I was pretty excited about Mute, but... It is a fucking disastrous piece of shit. Um, I watched Annihilation, which is based on the book by Jeff Vandermeer. It's called the Southern Reach Trilogy. Those books are great. Um, Jeff Vandermeer in general is great. He wrote another book uh, that I think came out this year called Born, which has a lot of the same themes as Annihilation and the Southern Reach Trilogy and is super duper interesting. So I recommend those books. And I thought the movie was pretty good. Um, you know, the, the books are very surreal and weird in a way that would make incredibly hard to capture on film. Um, the only thing I would say is that it's so surreal that I, I have a hard time imagining that anyone who didn't read the book could make head or tail of the movie. Um, And I've talked to a couple people who hadn't read the book and watched the movie and were just sort of like, it was beautiful, but I have no idea what the fuck is going on. And, you know, sometimes I like movies like that where you're just sort of, uh, you don't know exactly what's happening. This, This is a unique example of that in that the book represents a sort of cheat code. And, you know, the movie is the, is the movie is the first of the three books in movie form, and it's also, if you've read all three books, you learn even more that sort of fills out uh, the world being presented in Annihilation that is, is hard to understand. Um, so yeah, if you, if you saw the movie and, you know, like sitting in the mystery and thought it was beautiful, that's fine, but if you're, if you're wanting more, you could definitely uh, check out the books, and that would probably go some distance to... Um, you know, helping elucidate some of the the frustrating hanging threads. Um, There's a couple other shows I went through. There's this 
totally ridiculous show, uh, a British show called Collateral. It's on Netflix. It's about, like, it's a very ham-handed attempt to sort of project the Syrian-Iraqi refugee crisis onto a murder mystery. The only thing that's good about the show is, is it Carrie or Casey Mulligan? I forget. I mean, she's a very, like, captivating actress, and I would probably watch almost anything she's in, which is unfortunate because I think most of the things she's in are bad, despite the fact that she's uh, reliably great. But... Uh, the guy who wrote that show, Collateral, he's apparently like British Aaron Sorkin. Like he's just this very polemical playwright, and the show really does play out like a political debate in like the most uh, simplistic and ham-handed forms. Like all the, you know, the main character is very sympathetic to the immigrants and is constantly fighting against other cops and MI6 agents who are just like, these are garbage boat people, who cares? And she's like, they're human beings. And then launches into a eight-minute speech about why the Labor Party is correct about everything. So that's probably to be avoided unless uh, that kind of thing um, sounds fun to you. Uh... And yeah, there were a couple other... I'm trying to remember. There were some other things I watched, but if I can't remember them at the moment, they probably weren't that important. So that's this week's media review. I'll probably release this tomorrow, and uh, hopefully we'll have more pods coming this week.